History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 140th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are bringing you a location that is so haunted, the ghost adventure guys have been there more than once. And that's the Washoe Club in Nevada, specifically Virginia City, which also happens to be a very haunted city. This was suggested to us by listeners Tara Williams Case. And Jenny Justine, which indicates to me, Denise, that it's a pretty well-known haunted location if we had two people asking for it. Absolutely. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. Please check out our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we do have some messages to share with everybody. And the first message is from Father Maximos. I discovered your podcast a few months back. Real cool stuff. You guys do a fantastic job. Much love, Father Maximos. So thank you so much for that message. And then we also heard from Laura Davis on the fan page. Greetings from Ohio. I just got back from a trip to sunny California and was fortunate enough to stay on the Queen Mary. Of course, we did the ghost tour. Thank you so much. Our fans always doing what we want them to. I tell you what, the Queen Mary is very popular with our listeners. We've heard a lot about it. Yes, so we're going to have to plan one of these days to get out there. Going back to Laura, sadly, we did not experience anything. Regardless, the tour was amazing, and being on the ship was like stepping back into time. If you ever get a chance, go. I did hear some women in the hall talking about the group of ghosts that kept them up all night chatting together. Not with them, but it seems they were still attending a party that the living present were not invited to attend. That'd be enough for me. I don't think I'd want to hang out at that party. (laughs) Bethany left a message on the website. I recently found this podcast and I love the content. I will admit that I almost gave up on it after the first couple episodes, but I stuck it out because of the interesting topics. You ladies have improved by leaps and bounds, and I am only about halfway through the archives. Can't wait to see how much better it gets. P.S. Wilmington, North Carolina has a great group that does ghost tours downtown, and I'd love to hear about some of their locations on an episode. Are we hitting Wilmington? Actually, it's funny that she put that there because there's a battlefield that I want to stop at, a historic battlefield. And it just so happens it's 25 minutes outside of Wilmington. So instead of pushing it to get to Beaufort, I decided to stop over in Wilmington. So we will be there for the night. Holly sent us a message on the fan page. She said, I will tell you, after working in emergency services for many years and witnessing many deaths, I'm a believer in the supernatural. I lean more towards the Christian belief system, including good and bad spirits, or rather angels and demons. I'm amazed at the animals in a room when there's a death. They will bow down and whine and look upwards towards the sky. I know in my heart of hearts it is the soul leaving the body. I've seen it too many times. I have also met a few scenes when responding to emergency calls where there was a malevolent presence. Normally hard drugs like PCP are involved. Those calls are hard to shake off. Great show, ladies. I enjoy the history and the bumps in the night stories. 
That'd be a tough job. We are so thankful to our emergency workers out there and first responders. It's just everybody who does that kind of work down to the investigators to even with Josh, you know, having to process the people that come in that are no longer with us. So, you know, our hats are off to all of you. Thank you for doing that. We also got an email from Michelle Bollinger. Hello. I love the show. I love history. Not so much haunted places, just history in general. This last week I was on vacation in Colorado. We toured Leadville, which is very historic. We were in the Tabor Opera House, which is exactly how it was in the 1800s, and I actually felt something blow in my ear. It was very odd and scary, but the place was beautiful and creepy all at the same time. I highly recommend the Opera House and Leadville, Colorado. It is a very historical place. I just love it. We also toured Baby Doe's Cabin and the Grave Sites. If you already have podcasts about places in Colorado, please let me know. I just came across your podcast and haven't finished listening and haven't been able to find any regarding Colorado. Thank you for your time. And again, I highly recommend Leadville, Colorado. So we thanked Michelle and it was very cute because you can always tell when people are brand new and working their way through things. We did. I think I sent her three episodes that we've done that featured places in Colorado, not to mention the bonus cast that we have over in our bonus material that we did during our Denver ghost tours. But I let her know we actually lived in Colorado for 30 years, so we're pretty familiar with it. But I thought that was really cute. And Leadville is a gorgeous place and there's a ton of history there. So we put her suggestions on the list. Kathy Franco and the Spook Crew posted some pictures from San Antonio. And this is a place that used to be a Methodist church that's been turned into a hot dog place. Kind of interesting. I always look for my hot dog places to be former places of worship, you know? (laughs) You want stained glass around you when you're eating a hot dog, right? Sure. She said, we went to church today, but it was turned into a hot dog place. Pretty cool place. The story goes that it was once a Methodist church, a theater, and now it's a hot dog restaurant. Ghost story time, a little boy named Eddie lives there. In life, he was wheelchair bound from polio. Now he no longer needs a wheelchair, and he is very mischievous. The other spirit that lives there is Miss Margaret. She was very active in the community. The only story I got was that there are these feet prints that cannot be cleaned. We've heard that story a couple of times. Yes, we have. While we were there, the waitress told us that there's a door that just locked itself, and they are trying to figure out how to unlock it. It's pretty bad when you can't even get the locked door unlocked. No, at least we got Diane out of the lighthouse in St. Augustine. (laughs) Side note, the hot dogs were delicious and listen to the variety of hot dogs, Denise. Kangaroo hot dog, duck hot dog, and a rabbit hot dog. And I asked her, was that like, really a kangaroo? You you ate kangaroo? And she said, sure enough. Yeah, she said it was a little strange, but she, she did eat it. The thing that it seems really weird for us in the United States, but I had shared with her that some people that I know at the camp that I went to had presented me with a cookbook, a camping cookbook, but it was an Outback camping cookbook. And about every other recipe, every third recipe calls for kangaroo as the main meat. We also have a member of our Spooktacular crew who just launched her own blog, and we thought we would share that with everybody to give her a nice little boost. This features creepy stuff, legends, ghost tales. It's going to have a whole variety of things, which we know our listeners enjoy. It's called The Eerie Chateau, and where you can find it is at Eerie, E-E-R-I-E, Chateau, spelled as C-H-A-T-E-A-U-X dot Weebly dot com. Good luck, Kindle. Yes, go Kindle. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Sarah with an H. Hey, Sarah with an H. Michelle with two L's. Hey, Michelle with two L's. Steph. Hey, Steph. Melody. Hi, Melody. Don. Hello, Don. And Chrissy. Hey, Chrissy. Denise, are you ready to head on out to the Washoe Club? I most certainly am. Here we go. Hey. 
History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. James L. Chafin was a father of four and a farmer in Moxville, North Carolina. Tragically, he died in a fall, but he had guaranteed the continuation of his beloved farm in a will he had written years earlier that left the farm to his third son, Marshall. And then Marshall died. This left the family farm to Marshall's wife and took the farm out of the Chafin family's hands. Then a most odd thing happened. We've heard of ghosts helping to solve their own murders and bring justice. But a ghost returning to make sure a will is found? Chafin's second son, James Jr., brought suit in 1925 claiming that the will that had given the farm to the widow was not valid. And he based this claim on the fact that his father's ghost led him to the most recent and valid will. James Jr. claimed that his father's ghost had come to him in dreams for several nights. In the final dream, the ghost of his father appeared wearing his favorite overcoat, and he showed James that the will was in the pocket. James Jr. retrieved his father's overcoat, and when he reached into the pocket, he discovered a note behind a new lining. The note read, Read the 27th chapter of Genesis in my daddy's old Bible. James Jr. searched his father's belongings and found his grandfather's old Bible. Inside the Bible next to Genesis 27 was a new will written by his father in 1919. The will indicated that the farm should be divided among his children. The trial verified that the handwriting was James Chafin's, and Marshall's widow agreed to a settlement. Even she was convinced the will was authentic. A ghost leading his family to a hidden will certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History This Day in History is brought to us by Kristen Swintek. On this day, August 2nd, in 1921, Eight Chicago White Sox players were acquitted of throwing the 1919 World Series. This was the Black Sox scandal. The scandal claimed that those eight White Sox players were given money by gamblers in exchange for intentionally losing the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. In the first game of the series, White Sox pitcher Eddie Seacott struck Cincinnati leadoff hitter Maury Rath in the back with his pitch, which was the prearranged signal that the series would be thrown. Rumors circulated throughout the series about Seacott's performance and claims were made that the games were fixed. The White Sox lost the series on October 9, 1919. Rumors continued during the White Sox 1920 season and in September a grand jury was convened to investigate these claims. On September 28, players Eddie Seacott and shoeless Joe Jackson confessed to participating in the conspiracy. 
On October 22, 1920, eight players and five gamblers were implicated by the grand jury, which included nine counts of conspiracy to defraud. The trial began on June 27, 1921 in Chicago. Coincidentally, signed confessions and other key evidence went missing from the Cook County Courthouse. Seacott and Jackson recanted their confessions, and after deliberating for less than three hours, the jury returned a not guilty verdict on all charges of the accused players. Despite the verdict, nine Chicago White Sox players were permanently banned from Major League Baseball for life by the Commissioner of Baseball. You're listening to History Goes Bump. Virginia City is an Old West mining town complete with a history of gunfights, explosions, brothels, and mine cave-ins. The Comstock Lode was found in the Virginia Range near the future Virginia City, and prospectors came looking for an alternative to the gold rush. Samuel Clemens was one of them, and when his luck at finding precious ore proved lacking, he took a job at a local paper and adopted the name we all know him by today, Mark Twain. The richer men in the city wanted a place to call their own, and the Washoe Club was built for those millionaires. It is the oldest saloon in the city. And it is one of the most haunted locations in a reputedly very haunted town. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the old Washoe Club. The people who originally lived in this area were the Washoe people. They had lived in the Great Basin for over 6,000 years. The name Washoe means the people from here. A legend they share is that they were brought to the Great Basin by Gyu, the coyote. He told them that this was where they were meant to live as directed by Nantasu, Nintasu directed the land and her plants to nourish the people, and she told the Washoe that it was their duty to care for the land. The tribe was originally made up of four bands from different areas that each had unique customs and language patterns. Everything changed for the Washoe people when the gold and silver rushes brought people flocking to the area in an overwhelming flood. A. Brian Wallace, former chairman of the Washoe tribe, said of this time, quote, The health of the land and the health of the people are tied together, and what happens to the land also happens to the people. When the land suffers, so too do the people, end quote. The tribe today is in the Lake Tahoe area. Today, many people may not have heard of Virginia City, but in its heyday, it was one of the most important cities between San Francisco and Denver. The gold rush had brought thousands of people out from the east. The gold rush peaked in 1852. The next time precious ore would capture the nation, it would be silver that would spark that rush. The first major discovery of silver ore was under the eastern slope of Mount Davidson in the Virginia Range. The find was called the Comstock Lode, and it would make many men very rich and contribute to the building up of Nevada and the city of San Francisco. The announcement of the discovery was made in 1859. Mining was a tough life. Men worked long hours in 100-degree heat in mines that reached 3,000 feet into the mountains or ground. The sacrifice was worth it for many of these men as they not only got rich, but some believe that this silver that was used to finance the Civil War probably helped save the Union. In 2009, Virginia City and its County of Story were awarded the Distinctive Destinations Award by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. Samuel Clemens accompanied his brother Orion to Nevada in 1861. Orion had been appointed secretary to the territorial governor of Nevada. Like most of the men in the bustling town, Clements took up prospecting and went out to find his fortune. He had little success and he needed money. When he heard that the local paper in Virginia City, the Territorial Enterprise, was hiring, he applied for the job and he was hired as a reporter. 
Many newspaper men adopted pen names and he did the same, choosing Mark Twain. You can hear all about his life and ghost in episode 29. His first article appeared on July 6, 1862. Our listeners will appreciate Twain's thoughts on his time with the Territorial Enterprise. Quote, To find a petrified man or break a stranger's leg or cave an imaginary mind or discover some dead Indians in a Gold Hill tunnel or massacre a family at Dutch Nick's were feats and calamities that we never hesitated about devising when the public needed matters of thrilling interest for breakfast. The seemingly tranquil Enterprise office was a ghastly factory of slaughter, mutilation, and general destruction in those days. End quote. And of course, that's definitely what you need to start your breakfast with. But I thought to myself, news really hasn't changed. They just don't put it in such stark words. That is very true. In our present time, rich people generally gather at country clubs. There were no country clubs in Virginia City, but what it did have was the Washoe Club. The club would come to be known throughout the Pacific Coast. It all began with a planning meeting on February 21st, 1875 of 60 men who would become charter members. They each kicked in $150 to give them $9,000 to start the process of either buying or building a suitable meeting place. Among the 60 charter members were Territorial Enterprise Editor R.M. Daggett, several Bank of California officers, Virginia and Truckee Railroad officers, F.A. Triddle and H.M. Urington, Tahoe lumber magnate D.L. Bliss, mining magnates John Mackey and James G. Fair several mine superintendents, former Nevada Chief Justice James F. Lewis, Judge R.S. Messick, and Wells Fargo agent C.C. Pendergast. Membership was limited to 200 men. After two months, the group decided to purchase the Reynolds Building located at 8 and 10 B Street. Renovations were begun to create a luxurious space. The interior of the club featured a parlor that was decorated with bronze statuettes, a large French plate glass mirror and Italian marble, a gorgeous billiard room, a wine room with a beautifully carved black walnut sideboard, and the club boasted one of the finest libraries east of San Francisco. Expensive works of art adorned the walls. There were chandeliers covered with steel plate and polished to look like silver. On June 1, 1875, the Washoe Club officially opened its doors to roaring success. The success would not last long, though. Less than five months later, a fire would rip through Virginia City, destroying many buildings, including much of the Washoe Club. The group decided to move the club to a different location and constructed an even more palatial playground. There were three stories. A saloon was on the first floor, and there were rooms for reading, cards, billiards, and wine. A ballroom occupied the second floor. The Territorial Enterprise reported in 1876 the following about the new club. Quote, Taken altogether, the rooms were more convenient, better arranged, and more elegantly and luxuriously fitted up than were the rooms which were occupied by the club previous to the fire, end quote. And the paper best describes the appearance of the club like this. The reading room fronts on C Street and is lighted by four large windows of French plate glass. The apartment is 30 by 22 feet. The floor is covered by an Axminster carpet of the thickest and finest make and most elegant pattern. In the center of the room is a 4 by 12 table of black walnut inlaid with laurel, on which are all the papers and periodicals usually read on the coast. The room is abundantly provided with upholstered furniture in the shape of easy chairs, sofas, lounges, and the like. On each side are placed $800 mirrors of French plate glass and frames and mountings manufactured expressly for the porch of the building in front. In the evening, the apartment is brilliantly lighted by two chandeliers of polished steel. The reading room is separated by folding doors from the billiard parlor. 
The billiard parlor is in size its exact counterpart so that when both rooms are thrown together, an area of 22 by 60 feet is gained. It is lighted from the rear by day and by silver chandeliers by night. The carpet of this parlor is of the same pattern as that of the reading room. It contains two straw tables of the very best make and latest improvements, the beds being of slate and the legs, etc., beautifully carved. Wilton carpets with mitred corners surround the tables. The markers are peculiar institutions and were manufactured expressly for the wash show at the cost of $100 each. They consist of small black walnut stands, from the sides of which rise arms branching out about a yard. These are connected by wires on which are strung ivory buttons. The counting is done with the fingers and thus the unsightly and inconvenient wires across the room are avoided. A stationary washstand occupies one corner, and the parlor is amply provided with furniture. The room communicates with the hall and main entrance, and also with the wine room. The wine room is connected with the billiard parlor by means of a broad, arched doorway, richly and heavily draped with crimson curtains, which are drawn aside during the occupancy of the rooms. This room contains an elegant sideboard amply stocked with the very best beverages and cigars, which can be procured, and a lunch table bountifully supplied with delicacies and substantials. It is richly carpeted with body brussels. This room is adjoined on the west by the card room, which is carpeted like the wine room and furnished with all of the appliances which belong to such places. End quote. And it is kind of funny because I guess just during the time we would have known what substantials were or also with all appliances which belong to such places. Do you know what those are, Diane? I would have no, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming they're not saying there's a refrigerator in the middle of the card room. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure what a delicacy, I know what a delicacy is, but, and substantials, I guess, like, I don't know, your basic four food groups. I'm not I, sure. I, I, who knows? Oh, well. There is a fancy spiral staircase that has become infamous. It was built by a man named Francois Jean Rocas, and I apologize if I didn't get that quite right. Again, French will kill me every time. And he used no nails or glue in the construction. It is so unique that it has been featured by Ripley's Believe It or Not. Reminds us of the spiral staircase at Loretta Chapel in New Mexico. The reason is obvious. The same man built both in the same unique way. Although one staircase helped the choir get to the balcony, the other served a very different purpose. Men would come to the club not only for drinks and socializing, but for entertainment from the ladies of the night. They would climb the spiral staircase to meet the ladies. Reputedly, a couple of prostitutes were killed here at the club. The second floor was a ballroom. There was a storage room that had once served an unusual and macabre purpose. During the winter, the ground was too hard to dig graves, and a cool, dry place was needed to store embalmed bodies until winter was over. The club's storage room was the perfect spot. At one time, there was as many as 70 coffins in there. That's a lot of coffins in one storage area. I don't know where they put all the stuff that they usually would store there. Hope they didn't store it in the same place. Who knows? You know, dry storage on one side and bodies macabre, on the other. macabre storage on the other. I learned something so cool doing the research just on this particular thing here because when I saw the spiral staircase and I saw that it was featured with Ripley's Believe It or Not because it didn't have any nails or glue, I went, 
oh my god that reminds me because we saw the they call it the miracle staircase i believe at loretta chapel in new mexico right and they believed that an angel might have built that one yes the story that the nuns would tell is that they'd prayed to saint joseph to send them a carpenter who could build this spiral staircase that would get it so that they could get up to the choir loft because the man who had designed the church did not design a way to do this and then he died and they didn't want to put in a regular staircase because either they'd have to remove part of the loft which was already pretty small or it would take up some of the space and it just it didn't look good to have this big staircase in this little church because it's not very big if any of you visited it and this spiral staircase was perfect and it's really neat to look at it but you will find out if you dig deeper into it that it's not really all that miraculous there is some engineering feats that are involved in it that at the time it was pretty cool that he was able to make it that way but it does have a central stabilization there is some metal in there to help it it was not originally built with the banister that went around it another man had to put that in but it still is a really neat design and so these nuns had prayed to St. Joseph to send somebody who could do it because they couldn't find a carpenter that could do it and this guy comes he does it he doesn't ask for any money and he just leaves and so they were like oh it was an angel well then you see there's this other place that has a similar spiral staircase it's not as cool as the one at loretta chapel and not as intricate but it's definitely the same design and they had a name for that guy and when they went back and looked they went you know what it was the same guy who did the spiral staircase at loretta chapel this francois and i just thought that was very cool because i thought that that one at Loretta Chapel was the only one. It was a one of a kind. And to find out that this guy, this seems to be his specialty, that was really neat. Of course, you have two very different places. One of them's a millionaire's club that uh, had drinking and gambling and prostitutes, and the other was a church. Which has drinking, gambling. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. As mining production dropped, so did membership. Dues dropped and the amount required for membership dropped to $2.50, which of course back then was still pretty good. By 1897, the Washoe Club was finished, so it wasn't in business for very long. We don't know a whole lot between that time and the 1980s. I could not find hardly any information as to how it was used. I know it was turned into apartments at some point, but there's just not a whole lot of information there. We do know the building was condemned in the 1980s. And today, I believe, and I couldn't verify this either, but the most recent ownership that I saw was by Cliff and Jennifer McCain. Restoration is ongoing to shore up the building against earthquake activity and to repair the roof and to restore the rest of the building. So if you ever see any videos of this or if you get to go there and actually take a tour, the building is in need of a lot of restoration and it is a large building. These rooms are very big. The ballroom's very big. So anybody who's doing an overnight investigation there, it is a big area to cover. And just a lot really needs to be done there. There's a lot of damage to it. It hasn't been taken care of. And the, they have earthquake activity and the building is not really coded for that. So they need to get it so that it gets to that point. But it is open for tours. It is open for overnights. And the saloon is open. And a little fun fact, here's some of the drinks that they offer at the Club Denise. They include the Blue Lady. Okay, that's a good one. Everybody will be hearing about in just a minute. The Lemon Orb. Okay. The Time Warp. And I don't think that has the song to go with it. Oh, dang. So no Rocky Horror for this one. And my particular favorite, buttery nipple. <laughs> There's no comment from Denise. <laughs> I have no words. Virginia City is reputed to be a really haunted city. The old Washoe Club is one of its most haunted locations. 
The Ghost Adventures team has visited several times, and Nick Groff claims it is one of the locations that he is the most scared of because his name has come up several times in EVP and Spirit Box sessions when he's not even at the building. In other words, the ghosts seem to know him personally. The TV show made the place pretty popular, and as Diane said, they even host the ghost tours and overnight ghost hunts are allowed. They have a little museum there. It has uh, some macabre things and pictures that you can see. A little bit of synchronicity. I was listening to our friends over at Bizarre States, and they were at the San Diego Comic-Con, Denise, and they were up on a stage called Carnival. It was the Carnival stage. Get it? Mm -hmm. And Nick Groff was on there as one of their guests, and he was promoting Paranormal Lockdown is going to have their second season coming up. And they asked him where one of the scariest places he had ever investigated was or a place that really creeps him out. And he said the Washoe Club. For that reason, he'll hear from investigative teams and they'll say, hey, it said your name again. And it says it Nick Groff. It's not just that they're saying Nick. It's his full name. And then I went, well, that's weird because that's our next episode. And it was a place that I honestly I had never heard of before. Nor had I. And so for him to have said that, I was like, oh, and in the same week that we're doing that. Interesting. Just another one of those little synchronistic things that happens around here all the time lately. Many claim that the storage room is the most haunted area, more than likely because embalmed bodies were stored here until the ground thawed for burial. Some people believe that several entities are angry because they are still possessive of the club and don't want people they consider to be non-members inside their club. Miss Ellie is a little girl whose apparition appears with a dog in an upstairs hallway. She was killed in an explosion when a neighboring building blew up because a man had stored his nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and dynamite there. So apparently he was a miner and kept all of his stuff there. Twelve people were killed, and it made national news. And it did damage that portion of the club as well. Cameras malfunction all the time in the hallway where Ellie is seen. Wilson is a bartender at the saloon, and he claims to have witnessed a variety of manifestations that include matchbooks that roll down the bar, and bar stools that fall over all on their own. One of the prostitutes was killed on the third floor, and her murderer committed suicide on the second floor. Investigators claim that her name is Lena because a psychic told them that name. She has blonde hair and generally appears as a full-bodied apparition on the spiral staircase. She is also referred to as the Lady in Blue. She appears as a blue mist on the stairs at times as well. However, another psychic claims that the lady in blue is actually a young girl who was given a blue dress by her father and that a minor raped her and killed her by hitting her in the head with a pickaxe. Some people claim to get headaches near the stairs. Of course, this is relying on information from psychics rather than from documented history. A 13-year-old girl was killed by a predator in the basement, but her spirit is sometimes seen on the second floor. People claim to smell a floral perfume scent or cherry cigar smoke scent in certain areas upstairs. Diddy's, every time we hear about cigar smoke, it's always that cherry cigar. I know exactly. So one of these times I'm just going to have to smell it somewhere just to see what it smells like. Betty is one of the guides, and she once heard her name called out on a spirit box. One of the spirits claimed to be Tom and explained that he was a hippie who died of a heroin overdose there. A shadow with a big brown hat is seen on the second floor. In the early 80s, a man killed himself that lived in a third-floor apartment after his seven-year-old son fell into a mine shaft and died. There's a lot of activity in that room. Room 12 on the third floor has a door that slams hard on its own all the time. The door is cracked from the force. A suicide took place in that room. 
several people claim of being scratched in the room, and it usually shows up as that typical three rows, those three scratches. A lot of suicides in this place. Lisa H. on Yelp, toured Millionaire's Club 5-6-2016. Tour was at night, had a great time. Heard footsteps and pounding coming from the third floor. Definitely had an eerie feeling and my chest was tight the entire time. Took lots of pictures and caught something out of the ordinary. We'll be returning to stay overnight in a few weeks. Marcel B. on Yelp wrote, We have had our fair share of experiences here as well. From my arm being grabbed and my hair played with all nicely to banging on the wall so loud during a night tour that Carl rushed us off to another part of the top floor. I highly recommend that you visit here. So, do spirits from the Old West still wander Virginia City? Are former prostitutes still at the Washoe Club in the afterlife? Is the Old Washoe Club haunted? That is for you to decide. And they do offer overnight investigations, and this would cost people $400 for up to eight people. See, it costs a lot to be a tempter of the spirits, Diane. (laughs) That's right. You get to investigate the two upper floors of the Millionaire's Club and the First Floor Museum and Crypt when you're doing that. Investigations can start as early as 7 p.m. Sunday through Thursday and 10 p.m. Friday through Saturday. And if you're going to do that, you have to become a member of the Washoe Club, which costs $20 per year. We do have in the show notes the number that you can call if you want to set that up or book that. Sounds like an interesting place. I uh, I want to check out this Virginia City. Tara, who suggested this to us, also suggested several other places here in Virginia City. So there's a lot of hot spots there. It would be fun to go go see everything during the day and then, you know, let our friends go investigate at night and tell us the stories. On our next episode, Denise, I believe we're going to have our first New Zealand location. Oh, excellent. We're going to feature the Waitomo Caves Hotel, and this was suggested to us by our listener, Aaron Olivia. Sounds very cool. So looking forward to bringing that to everybody on the next episode. We do have a couple of reviews to share with everybody from iTunes. First one up is Simpy7, five stars, super entertaining podcast. I've never been much of a history buff, but putting a haunted twist on these stories really brings them to life. Thank you for a fun, upbeat, and entertaining podcast. The hosts are funny and play well off each other. I enjoy every episode. Well, thanks so much, Simpy. We appreciate that. Yes, thank you. And Jezebel279, five stars, deliciously spooky. Love this podcast, rich in history and haunts. It's like the cream cheese-filled Mickey Mouse pretzel at Disneyland. Engagingly delicious till the last bite. And you know something? I've seen those at Walt Disney World as well, and I've never gotten one because Diane's not as spicy like jalapeno-wise, but now we're going to have to try one. So thank you for the suggestion. Yeah, cream cheese filled Mickey Mouse pretzel just sounds wonderful. So if we're being compared to that, that's awesome. Yes. Now, is that the one with jalapenos, I wonder, or just It doesn't say jalapeno, so I don't know. Oh, well, the one we're getting has jalapenos. (laughs) Fabulous. I'm so thrilled. We want to thank everybody for joining us on this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Lee Gibson and Don Wood. Thanks. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes... 
one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Ninth Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.